Okay, I want to invite you now to turn in your own Bibles, or if you, again, if you want to follow along in the bulletins, that's fine as well. I'm going to continue for us the reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you happen to be picking this up online right now, let me encourage you to read the entire chapter before this portion that I'm going to read for us right now. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this portion of God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken, to listen, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. 
Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Rejection. Lord, help us to hear an ancient text. Spirit of the living God, author of this word, illumine your people today. Open up our minds. Allow my mouth to speak forth words of truth for the sake of your kingdom. May we all honor you as we are before you in your word this morning. We pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen. On the last day, before the judgment seat of God, some will plead their case. And they will stand before God, they will stand before the judge, and they'll say, Lord, didn't we do this and that? Didn't we do these things for you? Didn't we do things in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. On that day, they will be rejected. Now, if we think about that, if we have enough of a spiritual, moral, faith, imagination to look forward to that day, to imagine that scene, and if we are tempted to think to ourselves, you know, isn't God nicer than that? Isn't he kinder than that, gentler than that? Then I'm afraid that we need to have our minds shaped by the word of God and not the wishful thinking of our excuse-searching minds. That's what happens when we think that way. It is our brains looking for an easier way. It's our hearts being afraid and trying to come up with something to justify a reason not to be afraid and hoping. But it's just not true. That God's just a little bit nicer than that. I don't want to be rejected on that day. That's a terrifying thing. I don't want to be rejected on that day. I don't want Lauren or Janae or Nate or my kids or my grandkids. I don't want any of you on that day to be rejected. On this day, the day that is before us, the text that is before us today, on this day, Saul was rejected. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 
That's verse 23. That's the word that goes forth from this. And we wonder, and I know we wonder because I know some of you have already asked me about this in anticipation of the text before us today. We wonder, is this a statement that is strictly and solely about Saul's kingship? Or is it more? Is it a statement about his loss of the eternal kingdom of God? Now, I don't know. We may not have enough scripture to make a final statement about that. But it doesn't look good. It is not a good thing when the Lord turns to you and says, I have rejected you. In Saul's case, from being king over Israel. It is dreadful to be rejected by God. So I want to work our way through this passage today, which has so much to say to us as we reflect on our own lives, on our own sin, and on what goes on in the courts of heaven with respect to our sin, before one another with respect to our sin, and in our own souls as we think about our sin. I'm going to resist the temptation to outline our text today, but we do have to kind of work our way through each of the points, and they come pretty much. Uh, there's one point that's an inclusio, beginning and end, that I'll save for the end. But we have to work our way through these points as they come to us in this passage. And of course, the first thing that confronts us, and I noted this as I read the passage for us prior to our confession a few moments ago, the first thing that confronts us is this injunction from the Lord to utterly destroy Amalek, to devote them to destruction. To be sure, it is an extreme command. This was a particular type of warfare. It was not a type of warfare that was engaged in all the time by all of the armies of that day or let alone by Israel of that day. It was something particular, the theology of which we considered especially when we were studying the book of Joshua because that's where you see this unfolding again. The, there's a lot of parallels that exist between the book of Joshua and in particular Jericho and Ai and the passage that is before us today as well. We, we dare not fail to see and to appreciate the severity of this command as it is given from the Lord through Samuel to Saul and to the people to execute it. What we are looking at in this passage and in that command is the judgment of God. Do you want to know what the judgment of God looks like? Do you want to know the severity of the judgment of God? This is what it looks like. This is the righteous vengeance of God. Now, I say the righteous vengeance of God because we, we, we need to understand this clearly. It's not as if God was going, well, gee, I need somebody to be an example here of something. And, well, the Amalekites are close by. I'll pick the Amalekites and we'll wipe out the Amalekites for this. No, that's not the case. And we can see that in, in two ways. In the first place, we can see it because the Kenites are spared in this text. 
The the Kenites are not under the same judgment, though they are in, approximately, the same place as the Amalekites. They, instead, are shown mercy for their faithfulness, the kindness that they showed to the people of God when they were coming up out of Israel. They are appropriately spared. No, this wrath of God against sin is against the Amalekites, who sinned, now bear with this for a moment, who sinned hundreds of years before this text. Hundreds of years, okay, who sinned against the people when they were coming up out of Egypt. That's hundreds of years before this event takes place here. And so you look at it and go, well, that's a long time. That's that's a long time to now bring judgment. It was at that time that God said that the Amalekites will be destroyed for this sin. But God has been, and here's the key thing to understand, patient, merciful. For hundreds of years now, the Amalekites have lived in proximity to Israel. For hundreds of years, the Amalekites have had the opportunity to seek wisdom from Israel. To seek to know the God of Israel, and they have failed to do that. Instead, they have persisted in their sin. And so as the text moves forward, we're not talking about their sins from hundreds of years ago. We're talking about their present disobedience. And of course, as we get to the end point, as we get to the point where Samuel will take apart Agag, he says, as you have rendered women childless, so now receive it. This is a righteous vengeance of God. Is it hard? It is absolutely hard. We're not supposed to make it soft in some way. But it's just and it's righteous. God has been patient with them, but the full measure of the sin of the Amalekites has been reached, and now the judgment of God will be poured out. That's a parallel to something, if you want to look back at Genesis 15 later. Sin of the Amorites needs to be completed before the Israelites are given the land. The same thing applies right here as well. This is the time of the judgment of God. And this becomes a sacred act. It's not merely a political act. It's not merely these skirmishes and various battles that Israel would typically have, of which we've read numerous times in Samuel already. This is a sacred act. The Amalekites are to become an offering. They are to become an offering that is wholly, entirely devoted to the Lord. No part of them is to be spared. No part of them is to be spared for the Israelites. No spoil, no plunder is to come to Israel. That is the command. It is the word of the Lord. And just to be clear, as I hope I was a couple of weeks ago, it is not a word that belongs to us in the new covenant. It is not one that belongs to us, but it did at this particular time in history belong to the people of God. It is given through Samuel, the prophet, to Saul. It is clear, it is unequivocal, and it is unalterable. You can't change it. This is what you are to do. The representative king must crush evil, not compromise with it. That's the responsibility. Crush it. 
Don't compromise. He must listen. Shema. That's why I quoted the Shema before reading. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema, verse 1 here. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. That is the word that is primarily throughout this passage in its various forms. You don't recognize all of them because it's variously translated. Listen, hearken, obey. Shema. Listen to the Lord. Do what he says. But of course, we've read the story. The Lord blesses with a victory. And while Saul and the people are there, they decide that they are going to be more merciful, more economical than God. And they start a campaign of sparing. They decide things that they're going to spare spare and being wiser than God they thought you know listen why get rid of all of this good stuff we can repurpose things now please don't apply that to the pews if you want a pew you can have a pew this is not new covenant you can have a pew if you want a pew but they decided that listen this is good stuff here in the land and certainly we can make use of this this is great livestock this could provide wealth for ourselves. It can provide wealth for our children. It could provide food for the poor as well. Why get rid of it? It's perfectly good and useful stuff. Now, the, the cheap things, the worthless things, the, you know, the sick and the lame and uh, the, the, the things that aren't going to produce anything, we can get rid of those. But surely it would be a better idea to preserve the good things. Let's spare it. We can give some for ourselves. We'll give some as an offering to the Lord as well. One might put it like this. Claiming to be wise, they became foolish as they assessed the commands of God. And there's so much that is here for us. Listen, brothers and sisters, if sin looked like, if sin looked like or smelled like garbage, let me change the, the, that, that for a moment. Let me make that more graphic. If sin looked like or smelled like vomit, you would not be attracted to it. We would not eat it. We would not pick it up. We would not go, ah, look at that. It looks great. I'll try some. Can I please have some more of that? But sin doesn't look like garbage. It doesn't smell like vomit. Sin looks like fattened calves. Sin looks like woolly sheep. Sheep that can, you know, everybody likes lamb stew. Everybody likes a new sweater, a new coat. Sin and let me take it out of this passage and take it back to Joshua chapter 7 of Ai and the sin of Achan. Sin looks like silver and a cloak and a bar of gold. Or we can take it back further. Sin looks like delicious fruit. Sin looks like the corridors of knowledge that are opened up for you 
to show you the wonderful things that exist in this world which have been hidden to you hitherto, hidden from you hitherto. And now come and partake of this deliciousness. Sin says to us, listen, I know, you live in the world, we live in the world, we all live in the world, and in this world, God's commands, God's commands are, well, they're heavy. They're too burdensome for us. They're too extreme. They're too hard. They're too restrictive. They don't allow us to enjoy all of the fun stuff, the good stuff that there is out there to do in this world. You'll be happier. You'll be more included. You'll be more accepted by everybody else around you. You'll appear more sophisticated. You'll certainly be more satisfied if you look, if you taste, if you give in to your desires. That is the way sin always works. It doesn't matter if you're talking about this chapter that is before us or all the chapters that have come before us. It is the way sin works then and it is the way that sin works now. It promises, sin promises you what it cannot deliver without it kill you. Now, does sin have some pleasure associated with it? Is sin fun? Can it be fun? Well, the answer to that, biblically speaking, is sure. Sure. According to the writer of Hebrews. Sure, you can enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but it's fleeting, and it's ultimately bitter, and it will ultimately turn around and bite you and kill you. And so Samuel is sent to confront Saul. You thought that that sin looked really good. You thought that those things looked really good. But God sends Samuel. Now I'm going to come back to the grief and the, uh, the re rejection and the regret that comes here. But let me, let me press on with this and we'll come back to that point. Samuel hears as he goes to confront Saul that Saul is quite satisfied with the victory that has been achieved, right? So as he, as he moves along the road, he gets the message Hey, Saul has just erected a monument to himself, a monument to the victory. Saul's pretty happily happy with the way things have gone in this battle. And of course, that attitude is confirmed in verse 13 when we get this encounter between Samuel and Saul. And, and, and as soon as Saul sees him, he, he kind of goes up there. And, you know, when you see a prophet coming and you're a king, you probably think, rats, I, w I wish I'd have gone the other direction. How did the prophet catch up with me again? Prophets are not the easiest people to have around. They have a way of seeing through or seeing into stuff that you'd rather not have anybody look into. So Saul, and we'll get to this in just a moment, so Saul heads him off at the pass, and, and he says, oh, Samuel, great to see you. Blessed be you and the Lord. I have performed 
the commandment of the Lord. He doesn't wait for Samuel to open his voice. He's got this, he's got this suspicion, right? He's got this suspicion because that's Samuel and this is what he always says to me. So he heads him off right at the pass. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now there are a couple of options here. Either, I'm going to go with C by the way. I'm going to give you two options and then choose C. Either Saul is just trying to deceive Samuel. Saul might know exactly what he's done. And he's just hoping against hope that Samuel doesn't. And he's just going to say, yep, I did it. Don't notice anything behind me. There's nothing here to see. Move along. Move along, Mr. Prophet. Go to the next place. Go to the next town. That's what you do. You're on a circuit riding thing. Go to the next town. Nothing here behind me. No sheep, no kings, no nothing. Everything's good. Possible. Saul's just trying to deceive. Or secondly, Saul has convinced himself that what he did was right. Or at least what he did was within the general framework of what God wanted him to do. Maybe it wasn't exact. Maybe it didn't have every detail to it. But pretty much, I did what the Lord commanded. I think it's probably, frankly, a cocktail of both of those things going on when Samuel begins his interrogation, which will yield a deep lesson for all of us, basically in how not to repent. How not to repent. If Psalm 51, which we sang earlier in this service, is the great example of how to repent, and it is, then it is set in contrast to this chapter right here. How many times has this bugged you? How many times has it bugged you when you consider the sin of Saul against the sin of David and tried to say, wait a minute, one of these seems worse than the other. And it's the one that was apparently forgiven. The, the answer lies in the nature of the repentance. This, in this chapter, is an example for us of how not to repent, of shallow repentance or of false repentance, if you would prefer. So what does false repentance look like? One, it looks like avoiding confessing and admitting your sin for as long as is possible. Three times Saul asserts his obedience. I have done what the Lord commanded. And even after being confronted by him in verse 20, Saul says once again to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Yes, I was sent on a mission. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I did the stuff that I was supposed to do. And here I am. False repentance. Deny it for as long as plausible. Okay? Just, just deny, deny, deny. It didn't happen. I did it. Secondly, blame others. When it gets down to the basics, he says, I, I did everything you commanded, but the people, the people, they had this idea, and their idea was to spare stuff, to keep stuff, to, 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 to retain the best of things for themselves. Samuel, I wanted to obey, but the people, I only did what they wanted. Everyone else was doing it. Everybody else was keeping things. I thought, I'll keep Agag. 
They're keeping fattened calves. I'll keep Agag. Why you keep an Agag, I don't know, but you keep Agag. Third, he distances himself, himself from God. I don't know if you pick this up in the text, in the reading of the text. Verse 15, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Your God. Verse 21, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Verse 30, that I may be bow before the Lord your God. That's not good covenantal language. Good covenantal language, think of Thomas, think of David, my God, my God, our God, first person singular or plural, that's good covenantal language. But this is a distancing himself from God. You know, Samuel, you do all the religious stuff, you're gone. Kids, it's, it's distancing yourself from your parents. You're God. You're not, not my God, you're God. And then he tries to minimize it. Okay, this is step number four in bad repentance. Essentially what is being said here is it's not so bad, Samuel. You don't understand. <laughs> you don't understand, Mr. Prophet. Let me explain it to you. Here's, what, here's our plan. Our plan was to shift. We did hear the, the, the command, the utter devotion to the Lord, the destroy everything, but we've got, well, it's a better plan. And the plan is we're going to change the nature of the sacrifice. Indeed, we are going to offer sacrifices to the Lord, your God. Uh, but, but there are different types of sacrifices, you know. There's the utter ban, and then there's sacrifices which you can then, you know, it's just a tie that's a portion of the thing and not the whole of the thing and that's what we're going to do so what you're saying isn't really as bad as you think it is let me let me explain that to you we're, we're not as bad as you think but Samuel won't have any of it won't have any of it verse 23 he confronts this attitude and says listen rebellion which is what you're doing right now that is the same thing as divination you might as well be conjuring up other gods here, Samuel, in the way, or Saul, in the way that you're treating these things. Your presumption, which is what you're doing, you're presuming that you have the authority to make this demand to see what is best. Presumption, that is as iniquity and it is as idolatry. Don't you dare try to minimize what you are doing to God before me. Puritan Thomas Watson writes of this passage, a gracious soul, that is to say, a soul that has been infused by the good news, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in which the Spirit of God is operative, a gracious soul labors to make the worst of his sins. But hypocrites make the best of them they do not deny that they are sinners, but they do what they can to lessen their sins. Do you make the most of your sins or do you seek to minimize your sins? Be very careful how you answer right now. I did it yesterday. Prepared this sermon out in the driveway, 
I'm not even going to tell you all the scenario. I'm too embarrassed. I want to minimize this sin. Um, somebody walks by, little situation occurs, and I think, holy smokes, I just lied. I just lied. It, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I'm tell, telling you, this was a two-second interval of something that took place. Joe, it wasn't to you. Um, and, and, and I thought to myself, what did I do? Why did I do that? And the answer was, I wanted to look good. I wanted to look good in the, in the scenario. Fortunately, the person was walking by and stayed around long enough, and I was able to say, you know what? Sorry about that. I, I made a mistake. But even as I confessed to them, I minimized it. I minimized it. I wanted to make light of my sin because I want to feel good about myself. I don't want to feel bad about myself. The gracious soul. The gracious soul makes much of sin. Some of you in this church over the years, and I don't want to look at anybody right now, I'm going to look right over everybody's heads. Some of you have come to me belabored by your sin. Pastor, is there any way that God could possibly be forgiving me? I feel the weight of my sin. I feel like I'm being crushed. I don't feel like there's any way that I could be saved because my sin is so great. And you know what? I'm not worried about you. I look at that and say, that's awful. It's an awful load to carry, but you're carrying it because the Spirit of God is at work in you. I'm worried about the people who make little of their sin, not the people who make much of it. And when he finally admits fault, Saul, because you see that in this passage and it sounds good, but when he finally admits it, you can read through this passage and see that the concern is not with offense against God. It's not that he has offended the Almighty and he's seeking restoration with God. Instead, all he can think about is, how's this going to look before the people? We got, we got to work out a scenario. Something. Okay, Samuel, this is bad, but let's do something together so that I don't lose face, we don't lose the kingdom, we can continue on doing what we're supposed to be doing. This is not true repentance. This is not godly grief that yields repenting. It is worldly grief, and it produces death, and in this case, it produces rejection. God is not fooled by Saul. Samuel, God's prophet, is not fooled. May we not fool ourselves. Saul does not have godly sorrow in this passage, but God does, and Samuel does. God says in verse 11, I regret that I made Saul king. Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. And at the end, verse 35, Samuel is grieving over Saul, which he will do into the next chapter. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. May God grant to us that kind of heart. May we never be mechanical toward, ambivalent toward, indifferent toward our sin or the sin of our brothers and sisters in Christ. A broken and a contrite heart is a gift from God. It's a gift from Him, from the work of the Spirit of God. God wants the heart not mere forms of worship, not mere forms of obedience. 
That's the heart of the passage. It's the heart of this entire book. I want the heart, says the Lord. Now, please do not understand. Do not, pardon me, misunderstand. God does not regret as we do. This is not a, a statement wherein God is saying, you know, I should have known. I should have just skipped the whole kingship thing because I knew it was going to go bad. That's not what we're talking about here when it says that God regretted that he had made Saul king. God is not undone by our sin. He is not overwhelmed by our sin. He is not thwarted in his purposes by our sin, much less surprised by it. Now, in, in addition to those verses that describe the heart of God, you have to hold on to verse 29, and this may make your mind twist a little bit. You may have read over it through this point. Verse 29 says this, and also the glory of Israel, God, will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Well, you just read at the beginning, at the end of the passage, that God regretted. It's all the same word. It's all the same word that's there. No. Verse 29 says, listen, God is sovereign, God is free, God is almighty, but he is not cold towards us. The entire episode here with Saul is one more sad confirmation of the verse that is on the front of your bulletin from as early in the Bible as Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Same word. Same word. Behold, in this text, the devastating consequences of sin and the wrath of a holy God. One Gentile king, we're going to the end of the passage, one Gentile king before you hacked in pieces, one Jewish king rejected and abandoned. Behold, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Behold, one more king. Behold, one more king on a cross. Worse than being hacked to pieces. Hanging on a cross. The only king who was actually acceptable. Who should not have been rejected. And there he hangs, rejected, bearing the wrath of God against sin. A sacrifice of the Gentile king, utterly devoted to the Lord. It all has to go to the Lord because that's what sin costs. In the side of Saul, rejected, abandoned, forsaken. Why did Jesus have to die? Because he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Jesus was rejected. And that's what his disciples could not understand despite the amount of times that he told them, the Son of Man has to be rejected. I have to be rejected. I have to bear this. There's no salvation without it. I don't want to be rejected on the last day. I don't want you to be rejected on the last day. In his rejection, Jesus has secured the efficacy of our repentance. Our repentance without the work of Jesus Christ would be as hollow and as shallow as Saul's pathetic efforts. Our repentance needs cleansing in the blood of Jesus Christ. Those tears of yours need to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. In his rejection is the secured efficacy of your repentance. And so Jesus calls to humanity. Jesus the king says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe the good news. Lord, help us to believe and help us to live a life of ongoing repentance and renewal. We pray for those who are here today who do not know you, that you would pierce through the darkness, that you would shine the light of the gospel into their hearts and expose the sin that they might flee to Jesus, a king who can save. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray for ongoing repentance, for a life of repentance, of seeking to put to death the deeds of the flesh and crying out to put on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.